I'm Dr. Tanya Raquel. Welcome to Whiteness Interrupted. I believe we have to collectively disrupt and interrupt our whiteness and that it will have consequences. We must choose to have resolved that it is absolutely worth it. We don't have time to wait another day. So let's begin now. For today's podcast, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Leisha Carter. She's a Fulbright scholar, a womanist change maker, and an expert on inclusive and equity-focused practice in health. She is reimagining what it means to be healthy and to work in community through her work with the Coalition for Food and Health Equity, and she serves as the executive director. So throughout the interview, you can take of it what you'd like, but one of the things that really stood out for me is that Leisha shares how important it is to listen to the voices of people within communities and within the Coalition Equities work, it's food insecurity and health and wellness, um, and to walk alongside in the journey, partnering with communities, black and brown communities in um, particular, but all marginalized communities, and how important it is to centralize the voices who have been marginalized and recognizing that they have the answers and don't need those of us living in white skin uh, to save, to share our ideas, to to lead. Um, and so that is one of the things that I certainly took away from the interview. So um, I'm excited for you to listen to her wisdom, to her care, and to her love. And so welcome to the podcast. Hi, brave souls. I'm Dr. Tanya Raquel and your host on Whiteness Interrupted. Uh, I can't wait for our episode today. I'm so excited. The first reason being we have Dr. Leisha Carter, who I consider a dear colleague and friend and a change maker. And second, because she is the executive director of the Coalition for Food and Health Equity, a nonprofit organization that places hunger within the larger context of racial health equity, working to end hunger, improve health, and advance economic equity within historically marginalized communities, envisioning a nation where no one goes hungry and everyone can access the food and wellness services that they need. Uh, please join me in welcoming Leisha to the show. Welcome, friend. Uh, Leisha, we're so glad to have you on the podcast. Hey, Tanya. Thank you so much for having me. I am um... Very excited to be on your podcast and to talk with you today. Awesome. So, Dr. Carter, uh, I can remember it like it was yesterday, the day that I met you in 2012. And we were introduced electronically and told that we needed to collaborate on a curriculum for a course. And you were the instructor for one of the sections and I was the instructor for the other. And I think we both laughed many times since then thinking, who is this fool we have to work with? And uh, I have to say, for me, I am for forever grateful that our orbits have crossed. Do you remember that day? I completely remember that day. I remember thinking to myself, who is this white woman that I'm being paired with to, 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 do, to put this course together? You know, like we didn't, we didn't know each other. I didn't know you, you didn't know me, but I just remember thinking, you know, who is she? Mm -hmm. um, why do I even need to partner with this person? Um, uh -huh. To create a sports psychology course. Um, <laughs> but um, 
the universe had all the plans. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and we were both equipped to to teach sports psych. I can remember us preparing workshops and things. And <laughs> over time, um, we definitely worked well together. So I'm so grateful for that. But uh, let's get to the conversation. Are, are you cool with that? Absolutely. Sure. So I want to start by asking you what might be some of the seminal moments or experiences that have paved the way for you to become the womanist change maker that you are today in 2021? Yeah, that's, um, that's a big question, right? The, what are the moments um, that have helped me to evolve into my womanist change making work? Um, I mean, first, I would say that, you know, my identity as a womanist um, and change maker is one that has truly evolved over time. One from not even identifying as a feminist um, at all mm-hmm. um, and then evolving into my own feminism and then evolving and morphing into womanism. Um, but as with anything, you know, I always bring my father up in the conversations around around my change making work mm-hmm. um, and by way paving work. Um, you know, there's a story that I tell that I have um, an undergrad degree in psychology and a master's in psychology and then some other degrees <laughs> that I'm still still paying the student loans on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, me too, me too. <laughs> and um but when I got my, after I got my master's degree, um, I just felt so like, I was just like hot stuff, you know, like nobody could tell me nothing. I'm, I got a master's degree, you know, and I just was so ego involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had all these big goals and dreams of becoming a forensic psychologist and creating a professional career um, and a personal life that was really centered on myself. Mm. And after I got my master's degree, this was like in 2008, I remember going over to my dad's house that summer. My dad lived in Chester, Pennsylvania. He was born, raised, lived and died in Chester. Uh I was born and raised the early part of my childhood in Chester, Pennsylvania as well. And where my dad lived in Chester, um, it was not unusual to drive up to my dad's house and, you know, there's a drug dealer on the corner where there's, there's many memories that I had that I would be in my dad's house. And <laughs> there's one memory in particular that I was in my dad's apartment as an adult mm-hmm. and cops drove up on his lawn to raid the house next to him Mm. and not like we didn't do anything. Like it was like, that was just like, okay. Like they're just raiding the house next to us. Like, you know, what are we eating for lunch? And the amount of poverty, crime, the experience of the community that he lived in and the community that I initially grew up in of just being forgotten. And this is just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said to say that, you know, I go to my dad's house after I got my master's degree and then he asked me, he says to me, 
okay, so you got a master's degree. So what are you going to do for out there? And he points outside his window uh-huh. and he's like, what are you going to do for out there with that degree? And there was a point in the conversation where he actually opened up the curtains of his window and was like, you know, like look outside of this window mm-hmm. and look at the street outside. You can see, you know, the dealers on one corner, you can see, you know, the, uh, like the assumption of this single mom, you know, somebody, there was a woman like pushing um, a stroller um, and he's like, you, you, you're so ready to get a degree and leave and to forget. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you doing for, for those that need the education that you're getting? Yeah. And in that moment, I felt so embarrassed. Um, like, what am I, what, why, what am I going to do with this degree? Mm-hmm. Um, what is this degree for actually? And that conversation and the way in which he presented it to me, it set me on a different course mm-hmm. in my life. It put me instead in a place of constantly asking myself every day, like, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Is this for me or is this for, for my community? And it could be for, it can be for both yeah. or it can be for one or for the other, but is, what's the, it, there needs to be some intention mm-hmm. and there needs to be an, a, a deep element for me of community um, in everything that I do. And that was probably the biggest seminal moment for me of you're, you're going, you're getting hyper-educated. You're now a yeah. doctor. Um, what are you going to do that, wh- where does all that schooling go? Does that go into a system designed never to help people who are economically disadvantaged, mm-hmm. um, people of color, immigrants, undocumented workers and, and individuals? Um, or are you going to really put that into a system to disrupt it and help reimagine something much more equitable and sustainable for everyone. Mm -hmm. So that was number one. And number two was the passing of my father uh, because of all the ways that he challenged me to think beyond myself Mm -hmm. and beyond the ways in which I'm programmed to think inside of a system um, that doesn't allow us to dream bigger and to, and to think bigger. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when he passed away, it, it, it caused me to go really deep inside myself and and think, you know, Lija, how are you bringing, what does community mean? What does love mean? What, what, what do you mean in this, in this larger scheme of things? And, and, and what are you doing with your life? Um, even more kind of aggressively, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been blessed. I mean, of course, my friendships and, you know, um, various different positions I've held have also been seminal moments because they've challenged me. They've put a mirror up to me um, in various different ways to kind of think differently and say, like, you think that you're doing something that you that you want to be doing, but not quite yet. You know, you got to dig deeper. Um, and so there's always those little micro experiences as well. But I think the larger one has always been the 
that sermon that I received from my father and then the passing, uh, which is kind of like closing a chapter to open another one. Um, yeah. 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 I had, I had goosebumps um, hearing that and the powerful, um, you know, words of your father in that moment of time. And I also was thinking about, you know, these systems and the way that systems are designed. You had me thinking about how they're not made. They're not made for um, Black, Indigenous persons of color, LGBTQIA community, women, right? And, um, are, and immigrants and um, thinking bigger than the systems, right? Like um, to to change and to have change come come into play because the systems don't want change is kind of what I was thinking about. Like in your, your reimagining. Yeah. Yeah. So can you share with us then your journey to developing the coalition for food and health equity and tying that into how you are um, being this change maker for a broader community um, and not just yourself? in being ego-driven. I don't think you're at all ego-driven. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, I think that the journey to Coalition for Food and Health Equity has been one in the making. You know, there's like a quote or a meme that I saw where it says like, it takes like 15 years to be an overnight success. Um, mm. And I think that that's what Coalition Equity is for me um, at this stage in my journey, that it has truly been something, you know, I can't overstate that what my father said to me has lived inside of me since that day of mm -hmm. how do, how do I do what he was telling me to do? And mm -hmm. every, every year, every moment I would be trying. And I think now with coalition equity, I think I'm not trying anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm just actually living, I'm embodying what I was, what, um, what, uh, the lesson from my father's um, uh, message was for me. And so I think part of the journey was from that moment, you know, you know, 14 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but even more so just in the most immediate proximal future, I mean, proximal present time, coalition equity um, was first seeded a year ago, exactly a year ago, last March, 2020. Mm -hmm when um, COVID hit and, you know, when um, the pandemic hit and New Jersey, along with everywhere else, not just in the U.S., but in the, in the country, was faced with shutting down businesses, our communities, our lives in order to survive in the best way we knew how, an unknown virus. Mm -hmm. And Many people know me. I'm a foodie. I love restaurants and cafes. I'm somebody that goes to a bunch of different cafes. Um, I actually always had a dream and a goal to open my own cafe as well. So mm -hmm. I love food. Mm -hmm. I, I love the, the ways in which communities are, excuse me, uh, eateries and restaurants are really just part of the culture and fabric of our communities. But one particular cafe around the corner from me that I would frequent all the time, I went in there. It was just after uh, the regulations and the restrictions around the shutdown had been announced. And so um, eateries and cafes were just beginning to grapple with the fact that they were going to have to um, severely limit their in-person service mm 
mm-hmm. to a new kind of to go or some something or other type of service. And this was going to really impact their bottom line. Yeah. And so I went into this cafe around the corner from me, square one, and the owner, one of the owners who is really the, the chef um, uh, of square one was in the restaurant and, you know, he's just seemed very um, sad and overwhelmed. And so I, I did what I usually do. I asked him what was wrong mm-hmm. and he shared with me exactly what I, you know, pretty much just shared that, you know, um, there's so much going on and he wasn't sure how his restaurant was going to survive mm-hmm. um, this shutdown. But then at the same time, there were some people who um, I think either reached out to his cafe or he kind of heard through word of mouth. Um, people who were also struggling regarding hunger because mm-hmm. there were with limitations occurring with the pandemic. Um, it put restrictions on our free uh, food distribution services. So imagine a food pantry or a soup kitchen. You no longer can stand in line in order to get free food or to go shop in a food, um, in a food pantry because of the social distancing guidelines and those restrictions. So that was being closed down as well. So people who heavily rely on those services did not have an alternative. Mm-hmm. And so they were individuals who were already experiencing food insecurity, um, were going to restaurants and other places asking if they had any leftover food or anything they might be willing to share. And so he had shared with me like, hey, I'm struggling financially. And now people are coming to me asking if there's anything that I can share. And I want to be able to help them, but I can't financially. And so I said to him, you know, I kind of of am able to help you. I, you know, do um, in another kind of realm of mine, um, provide development and growth services to, you know, small businesses and nonprofits. And I can help you. Um, I also have a really good programmatic brain and I can, I can look up a program and an initiative fairly quickly. And so he said, okay, you know, whatever you can do to help, um, I'll, you know, welcome that. And so um, I did say, I said, you know, be careful what you wish for because I'm pretty good at what I do. And so <laughs> I left and um, uh, I went home and I sat at my desk. Um, actually, I didn't have a desk at the time. I just had my kitchen table and I text a bunch of people. I text a bunch of current students, old students, mentees, and said, hey, I am creating a hungry task force. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to get some donations. And those donations are going to go to paying for the meal creation of Square One. Mm-hmm. And that's going to help Square One give meals to people in the community that need them. And it's going to help square one stay open. And so what I need from you all is I need somebody that can do some social media for me. I need someone that can help me book up a website. I need someone to help me with some GoFundMe fundraising. And this is what we're going to do. And so uh, pulled together about 12 students and mentees and friends. And that was our hunger task force. Uh And, you know, within a very fairly short amount of time, um, we were able to garner enough support to be able to support square one um, being able to deliver meals. And then shortly after we were able to bring on another restaurant being El Gordo 
to deliver meals as the need, um, as we saw the need rising. And then on the back end, we just took inventory and managed people. We created an enrollment process and all of this. And um, so that way we could formally enroll people and not just do one off meal delivery, but mm-hmm. people could enroll in an actual meal subscription service. Um, and so after that, um, you know, state and student and state local government kind of caught wind of what we were doing and the way in which it was formalized um, and said, hey, we want to support you. And so they supported us in scaling our program to be much larger. And that got us to a point of now having, you know, 500 or so individuals enrolled and um, 10 restaurants in our program. And that was 2020. And throughout that entire time, you know, as the person doing the operations of this, um, it became very clear very quickly that the persons that we were serving, um, our clients, our customers, were those who also resided in food deserts and Mm -hmm. exercise deserts. Mm -hmm. Also, our customers are majority persons of color, mm-hmm. Hispanic, Black, um, as well as they hold other minority status. Many are immigrants um, and non-English speakers. Mm-hmm. And as we already know that racial health inequity exists, mm-hmm. but when you really sit inside of it from an operation standpoint and in administering a program like the Hudson County Hunger Project, you begin to say, no, this is this is very deeply real. Yeah. Um, and even the ways in which we mobilize to deliver our meals makes it made it challenging too. And mm-hmm. so as the year went on, it was it became apparent to me that look, if we really want to transform um, access to food, and we know that food is a mechanism for health. Yeah. for managing health, mm-hmm. for, for understanding physical health, mental health. Um, we also know that economic security impacts food security. Mm-hmm. Um, it impacts mental health, your access to mental health resources. All of the things, this has to be bigger than just food. Yeah. It also, in order to disrupt a system that is reinforcing food insecurity, you have to you have to actually look at the root of this, and the root of this is racism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, like that's yeah. the root. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, really sat back and thought about it, and said, you know, if I want to. To, to really implement change here is one to root, to just, you got to pull this out from the root, you know, yep. um, as, you know, Angela Davis says. And so mm-hmm. it was like, look, I don't, I didn't see the hunger project discontinuing. I see it, I saw it expanding, but in order to do better work, we have to dig deeper and we have to be much more critical of why this program even Mm -hmm. needed to exist. Yes, yes, yep. You know, Mm -hmm. and so it needed to exist because of all of the isms. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what brought us here today to Coalition Equity, 
um, Coalition for Food and Health Equity, and we refer to it as Coalition Equity for short, because we're saying food is a mechanism. Food was the door that opened us up yep. into um, understanding one very critical need within our community. However, is the larger issue is racial health equity and understanding how economics, social economics plays a role in why even hunger exists and all the other dimensions of insecurity exist, which is what we seek to disrupt, reimagine and rebuild. Yeah. Ooh. So, uh, well, first let's say thank you for the work you're doing. I know it wasn't too long ago that um, I said to you that I see you reimagining and how powerful it is. Um, and part of the reimagining as you've spoken to is um, taking away like the individualized blame that society tells us to do for, you know, food insecurity or lack of healthcare and recognize that the current systems in place have been created um, to, to marginalize people. And so how do you specifically see uh, coalition equity um, interrupting whiteness and continuing to interrupt whiteness? Mm, that's a, that's um, a great question. I think that um, the interruption when I think of interrupting whiteness, I'm, I'm thinking of the system mm-hmm. of white privilege that has um, that has historically caused communities of color to be marginalized and disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. And I think that that happens with coalition equity, both internally and externally. Um, And so I'll first start with internally, that for coalition equity, it's important that we are a Black-led organization, um, that we're an organization that in order to fully deeply live out our mission, the the internal voices are voices of color yeah. um, and and very and diverse voices as well. That's something that's very meaningful to me. Also that our board reflects our staff mm-hmm. um, and also reflects our mission around racial health equity. Um, and so just even from a representation standpoint and a leadership standpoint, disruption has to occur in that way. Also, I think our model internally is about professional development and incubation um, with our current staff. And so to me, when I look at our staff, I see just the most phenomenal humans ever. Mm -hmm. And internally, it's about taking the, the, the right talent that you have and that talent being majority individuals of color and one helping them lean into their power and their brilliance, recognizing that they are navigating a world that tends to, tends to diminish their light Mm -hmm. and diminish their voice and reshape and recharacterize their power. And so what makes coalition equity, what, how coalition equity can be powerful is if we have a powerful staff. 
as staff that sees their brilliance, understands who they are. And me as an executive director um, allows them to show up in the most full, powerful, joyous way that they are. Yeah. So there's internal stuff that has to happen in order for us to externally be disruptive because I can't, I can, you know, I, I could, but I, I can't say like, yeah, we're going to be out here disrupting stuff. And internally, I'm not really cultivating my staff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's some internal stuff. Externally, it is about moment to moment sitting back and saying, how can we do better? Mm-hmm. I am, <laughs> this is, I don't know how this is going to sound, but I, I'm just never satisfied. Uh-huh. And um, it's about saying, okay, coalition equity is only as good as, you know, we're in the present and what is the future that we're trying to parent here? Mm-hmm. And right now our present is we have this wonderful restaurant to table model that is steeped in community partnerships and relationships, microeconomic growth and development, but it cannot stop there. Right. And so what is the next step? Is it farm to restaurant? Mm -hmm. Is it farm to table? Is it understanding the plight and the social and racial injustices of our farmers? And how can we be a part of that movement? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it recognizing that, hey, we see a very clear trend, in, at least in our program, of the way, where we deliver our, is, is exercise deserts, our food deserts. Um, and so ha- we have resources. How do we partner mm-hmm. in order to disrupt the lack of resources in the various spaces where we are coming into and thinking in, innovatively and thinking about partnerships and areas of potential growth there. Mm-hmm. It's about opening ourselves up to communities that may not be represented in our current service pool, but saying, how can we do better? Particularly when it comes to working with leaders and and communities, um, the LGBTQQI community, Mm -hmm. like how can we do better or what can we do in order to expand our service delivery to food insecure, um, gay, lesbian, queer, trans community folks, um, which is something like we're working on. And so it's like recognizing that equity Mm-hmm. is not a there's not like a there's not a finish line yes yep you know like mm-hmm. it's like this is something that like if somebody comes to us or one of our staffers is like hey like this food program could be so transformative within this community or with in this group or it, it's like okay so how do we mobilize what do we do let's like Let's get this party started and really try to figure out a, a, a system that can be established that is in line with what we do, but could, could be mm-hmm. wonderful in expansion. So I think part of kind of white dominance mm-hmm. and, and 
is that you 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 put boundaries around what you do in a very rigid sense. Yeah. And I think for us, we don't do that. Now, of course, we can't do everything, but we're just, we're kind of, we, we allow ourselves to be open to the possibilities and, and go with it, particularly because we recognize that the need is so great within communities of color. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I answered your question, but. Oh, you did, you did. And you have my mind um, on rapid fire. You know, it also had me thinking about how coalition equity, how your, um, I don't even want to use the word using, but you're igniting people within the community, voices within the community, representation in a way that historically in present day, um, you know, the white community, we in our white privilege will come in and say, okay, like, well, what can I do? How can I do it? Let's do it this way, my way. And it also speaks to, you know, I start off the question of like, how are you reimagining? It's like getting rid of whiteness, right? Like all these, all these white structures and boundaries. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah. Like in our partnership. So one of the elements of coalition equity is to build coalitions, is to build groups committed to health, racial health equity work. And while we, while we're here in the northern New Jersey area doing the work, our hope is that we can, in the future, our, our, one of our future goals is to establish over a thousand um, uh, wellness, health, and or, and or food coalitions steeped in this racial health equity model. And that is our way of saying, like, we're not doing it for you. We are working alongside you to do this work in the way that you have identified best for your community. Mm-hmm. And so I think when we think in these, um, these uh, very kind of conventional dominant uh, white structures, there tends to be like rules yeah. around certain things that restrict, particularly communities of color and in, in engaging in practices and um, activities that are best for them Mm -hmm. and therefore they are short-lived and don't have the impact that they could have because it's not what what would work best in a barbershop you know what I mean Mm -hmm. or what would work best in you know Mm -hmm. um, a, a, a community or a group or in a particular entity and so um yeah we're like we're we are here to partner and walk with not to be the, like, this is how it needs to be done. And mm-hmm. even that, to me, every day in this role with coalition equity becomes more and more deeply humbling because you remove your ego out of it. You're like, yeah, this is not about me. Mm-hmm. This is about what is going to be best for you all. Mm-hmm. And, and when we identify that, that's where the magic happens that's why it becomes successful because you're like yeah it's going to work best for you like doing the the initiative this way or the program in this way will work best for you and we're going to partner um with you um in that way like what's you know we're going to make it work Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. yeah so Leisha, let me ask you this uh if we have listeners who are white identifying and thinking oh how can i support coalition equity, uh, what would, what would you share with them and ways that listeners may support? Number one is to donate. Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, people really, and this isn't like, you know, like give us money, but donating for coalition equity directly goes to feeding someone. Yeah. Um, it directly goes to, so our model to microeconomies is that a donation isn't just about meals, but it's also about you're helping feed someone who's experiencing food insecurity, but you're also supporting the hands that prepared that meal, the food mm-hmm. service worker mm-hmm. who in the current, our current economic um, situation really relies on that job. You're also supporting the restaurant partner who that donation is keeping the lights on, is helping pay for sourcing the food. You're also supporting the farmer whose crops and harvest that money is going to because the the restaurant partner is paying that farmer. So that donation goes a long way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So donating is big. Donating is big. Also, bring your connections, your collaborations, and your partnerships. You know, you might not have uh, funding to donate, but you have relationships. And uh, BPOC-led organizations need relationships. They need people to see that their networks are vast. And that network allows them to become more deeply established. Mm-hmm. in order to attract greater support. Yeah. Also, just talk us up, you know, post about us on Instagram, follow us, you know, share on your Facebook that you listen to this podcast, this organization's doing amazing work. Just visit us, you know, on our on our website, you know, bring us some love, bring us some traffic, you know. Um, all of this type of support allows us to show that we are here, we exist, people acknowledge our work, um, and see us. Um, mm-hmm. and so a follow goes a long way. You know, we all track our follows like, Oh, we got another follower. <laughs> like that's great. Um, and so, um, yeah. And if you, and if you live in, um, the Northern New Jersey area in Hudson County or Essex County, or even Union County, and you know someone that could benefit from our meal program specifically, um, you know, direct them to our website. Um, and on our website, they can enroll online in our meal program. Also, if you might be interested in volunteering, shoot us an email. Um, our information is right on our website. Um, we're always happy to kind of talk to people who um, might be willing to volunteer some time or they might have some skills. Um, that, you know, we could really use. So there's so many ways to help and to support um, directly and indirectly. Yeah, well, I'm sending nothing but love to you and Coalition Equity. And so I would like to ask, um, in one of my transitioning questions that I'm going to ask all of the podcast guests, um, you are a Black woman, I am a white woman, And I would like to ask you, what are some of the reasons you find it important that we collectively continue to interrupt whiteness? Yeah, I think knowledge is power. And I don't, like, that just kind of, that's the first thing that came to my mind. I think that, you know, why are we here on this earth? You know, um, we're here to learn, to grow, to evolve. And I think interrupting is a form of, growth 
Mm-hmm. It's a form of learning for both the person interrupting and the person being interrupted or the system being interrupted. Yes. Um, when we don't allow interruption to happen, we are not understanding a, a potential growth point. Mm-hmm. And we also aren't allowing ourselves to be open to an alternative yet parallel, parallel reality. And we are cutting ourselves and an opportunity short for Mm -hmm. elevating Mm -hmm. who we are in this time that we have on earth. Mm -hmm. So I would say seeing interruption as this wonderful opportunity for growth, for learning, for education. And for me, spaces in which I interrupt, I see it for me personally as a opportunity to develop more skills around interrupting Mm -hmm. um, system change, system growth. Um, From a coalition equity standpoint, how can coalition equity and me as a representative interrupt, but then provide a solution. Like we're not just going to try, I'm not going to just say I'm interrupting and I'm, I feel like we should uproot this, but how do we reimagine after the roots have been uprooted and how do we rebuild and rework and reestablish something even better? Yeah. And so all of that is the hard work, but that to me is the good work. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, so good. Oh, thank you so much. It's been absolutely amazing to have you on the podcast. I'd like to end with some quick questions that uh, will not have any interruptions afterwards. Are you cool with that? Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what keeps you up at night? Nothing. Um, And the reason being is because I allow my dreams to do the work. Awesome. What brings you joy? Anything that's filled with love, friendships, family, food, rest, um, seeing a little kid laugh, (laughs) you know, just anything that's filled with love. Mm -hmm. On your last day of your earthly life, uh, you meet your maker of the universe. If you believe there is one, what are you toiling for her to say to you? that you've done a good job. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Leisha Carter, I think you are doing an amazing job and I have nothing but love for you and uh, Coalition Equity. And thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Of course. So before we end our podcast today, I want to lead us in a meditation as you're reflecting on all of the things that you have learned and heard from Dr. Leisha Carter. So go ahead if you're able to get a little bit more comfortable. And when you're ready, take a deep breath in through your nose. Hold your breath at the top and exhale through your mouth. Dr. Leisha Carter shared with us what it might mean to reimagine a world where no one goes hungry where people have the resources that they need. 
Go ahead and take another deep breath in through your nose and exhale through your mouth. Might those of us who are listening and living in white skin think about the ways that we can step back, that we can listen to, uplift, support Black, Indigenous persons of color and recognize that they have the answers, they know their needs. And might we work in community, in partnership, alongside in doing our part in interrupting our own whiteness daily. You are exactly where you're meant to be. We can continue and choose to continue to toil to do better. And I'll see you back next time.